Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by Stephen's Birthday Cake. Hey. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, it's the birthday boy, Stephen Hackett. Happy birthday. Thanks, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I get to talk with yeah. you, my, my friend, about space things. It's a pretty good afternoon. That's pretty nice for a birthday. That's good. Now, of course, people may not know this, but um, if you've been listening, you may have gotten a clue about this. Stephen's birthday is a momentous day in space history, and we're going to talk about it later. Mm-hmm. Because, Stephen, you were literally born the day of the Challenger disaster. That's right. The the evening. I, I never forget your birthday, ever. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I wish it was for happier reasons, but that's Yeah, fine. yeah, and I, I wish you weren't born when I was in, like, gym class in high school. Can't, can't help you there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I got to live through the 80s a little bit more than you did, so there's that. That's true. I got that going for me. Yeah, so we're, we will get to Challenger, but first... We have some pre-flight checklist stuff. Yes. Yeah. There's a, why don't we do a commercial crew update? Because okay. there, is, uh, there's, th- there are things happening, and that seems like a good place to start. It's the year of commercial crew, as they say. We say I think we say that. <laughs> we say that. They say but we say. But we said that last year, too. Yeah. I don't think the year before. So hmm. the uh, Crew Dragon Team, SpaceX, they had their in-flight abort test. It was really exciting to watch. It got pushed back a couple of days, and I think it finally happened on Sunday. And it seems to have gone really great. So they yeah. they launched, they separated, they lost the uh, the booster stage, which is expected, right? You take the top end of your rocket off, and aerodynamics are going to do their thing and destroy your vehicle. Yeah, it is literally it went the best that you're ever going to get uh, any space launch that involves a giant fireball. <laughs> right, yeah. And a very impressive fireball. Like you can go find mm. – we have some links in the show notes. If you haven't seen these images, it, it's it's something to see. And it – parachutes all worked. You know, SpaceX has struggled with the parachutes and they've done a lot of testing and they seem to, to have ironed all that out. And they are – now there's really nothing standing between them and a crewed mission. Yeah, it's pretty close. Elon Musk uh, thinks uh, – now, okay – we're going to talk about timelines involving Elon Musk, but I want to say I think he's not, not making things up this time. I think this is a near timeline, and he actually means it. He thinks that they're going to be able to do a crude launch in the second quarter of this year, so April, May, June of this year, um, which gives them a lot of you know slack to the end of the year. But I think I don't think this is a maneuvering thing to get it in under the wire. I think they really feel they're ready to go. And in fact, it's kind of funny. The thing that may stop them from launching as quickly as they might otherwise is related to staffing on the ISS uh which uh, who knew but like <laughs> they're they're going to be a smaller group of people on the ISS there's like a little portion of the expedition window where they're going to be down on a uh, crew on the ISS and so NASA is deciding and presumably talking with the ISS partners about if they want to since they're going to have people in uh Dragon going to the ISS in in Q2 one of the things they could do is leave them there because it was supposed to be a short duration stay. Like they'd be there for a couple of days and then they'd go back with Crew Dragon. That's the the, the concept initially of this test mission because um, it's technically the last kind of test mission before they certify it as official. But another option would be to extend and to just keep Crew Dragon there and have those guys, because um, I think I think that's guys, right? I think that's two guys on that one. Anyway, uh, have that crew... Um, do work on the ISS and, and actually be there for months. Um, 
which is fine except for one trick, which is you can't just push an astronaut into a capsule and say, good luck, uh, <laughs> see you in a few months. They, they, as we know from watching them in the, in the tank, right, when we went to Johnson Space Center, there's a lot of training. If you're going to do an extended mission to the ISS, they need to train you on all the things they're going to want you to do up there. Right. And that sounds like it's the holdup is if they, they, may not, they may need to hold the mission if they decide to extend them so they can train them on the extended stuff they'd need to do with the ISS because an untrained astronaut hanging around the ISS isn't as helpful as a untrained for that mission because they've been training on this mission, which is not a lot of time at the ISS, but checking out everything about Crew Dragon. And if they have to add ISS duties to the pile, they're going to have to train them up. So it's a kind of interesting situation where we will hear what NASA finally ultimately wants to do in terms of syncing up uh, their ISS crew issues with what they want to do with the first commercial crew launch. But it seems really like it's going to happen soon, like relatively soon. I mean, it's right around the corner, it seems like. And I'd imagine that they have seen this coming and they'll be able to work through these uh, these issues. But yeah, it's it's not just like uh, going to space camp, right? You're there to do a job and they need to make right. sure the right people there at the right time. And Otherwise, you're just taking up the oxygen of the people who are doing the actual work, and nobody wants that. No, it's not uh, a good use of anyone's resources. <laughs> um, so yeah, so on the on the other side of the coin, we have Boeing. They we covered this last time. They had their Starliner issue. They were supposed to go up and dock with the space station, and they had the issue with the uh, elapsed mission timer. And so the yep. spacecraft didn't know when or where it was. It burned too much fuel to make it to the station. They were able to bring it back safely, and basically the rest of the mission did what it was supposed to do. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of news about what's going on as far as the fix to that or if that was the whole issue. There have been – there's this article uh, over on ours uh, about the uh, thruster performance of the capsule, and it may – it seems like there were issues with that as well where they burned a bunch of this fuel and basically a lot of stress was put on the the service module thrusters uh, because of the way that the timer told the spacecraft to burn. And they are, uh, my guess is, and according to this article, they're looking through that and trying to understand, is that a timer issue? And these thrusters worked within the, the bounds of a, a nominal mission or... Are there some sort of issues with the thrusters? A source uh, told Eric that eight or more thrusters failed at one point and one thruster never fired at all. So kind of seems like it may be more than just a timer issue, but they haven't right. said anything definitive yet. Yeah, and they're they're hesitant about this. It sounds to me like NASA and Boeing both really, really, really would like the next mission to be the crew demo. Um, but they're also really aware that the more I, I get the feeling like the more they find that is questionable, the harder it is to make that call and that they may end up having to do another demo mission without people on board. But um, it sounds to me my guess is that this is going to come down to do we think these issues put the crew at risk? Right. Because as we said last time. The failure to reach the ISS, not only if there were people on board, they might not have had the failure because they could have overridden it, but it wouldn't, I mean, the capsule came back safely. It wasn't a, a, a danger issue for the capsule so much as it was a failure to meet the mission. And so uh, my guess is if they decide there are, there are issues and they're working through them, but 
the issues that they found don't put the crew at jeopardy, maybe they will go ahead with a crewed mission. If they're concerned that these are safety issues for the crew, I don't see how they're going to be able to do that. And, and NASA hasn't answered the question yet if they're going to requ- require Boeing to repeat this test. By the letter of the law and the commercial crew agreement, it seems like they're going to have to do that. But it's all still under investigation and up in the air at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, commercial crew coming along. We got to see that dragon zip off away from its uh, away from its rocket that was firing at beyond max Q, like really high up and then take a long time to come down and the parachutes all deployed. It was really fun to watch. If you didn't get a chance to see it, it was fun to watch the, the video. It was very early. So I watched the replay of it, <laughs> but um, it was uh, it was something to see. And, you know, actually today as we talk and we're going to talk about Challenger later, this is why the capsule on top and in-flight abort test stuff exists is because the issue with the space shuttle was that it was on the back of the of the tank and the SRBs and there was no abort procedure really and if you put the people at the very top and have the ability for the top to just pop off and zip away you're much safer as a spacecraft so that that's a, like a perfect example of why they do why they have systems like what got tested on crew dragon so it was good to see it good to know that if there's a problem as we saw what that soyuz right like if there's a problem and you can just abort and pop the top off and send the people back to earth that's what you want to do so um, we're getting close we have uh, mentioned this a couple of times but the time is now is now here for the spitzer space telescope isn't it Mm, yeah, it, it, death comes for us all. <laughs> Happy birthday! Anyway, uh, the look, the Spitzer Space Telescope is a part of a grand tradition of stuff we've launched into space with a very limited expected life that has vastly outlived its life, which is yeah. such a great story. Mm-hmm. It's been in service for 16 years. It's shutting down on Thursday. It's lived 11 years beyond its original five-year lifespan. Spitzer Space Telescope is an infrared telescope, so you get it up out of the Earth's atmosphere. It sees into the infrared wavelengths, and it lets it see stuff like distant galaxies. It's discovered exoplanets. It's verified exoplanets from other sources um it discovered a a large diffuse ring of material around saturn which is a pretty cool one it used to have three different uh instruments but it ran out of coolant in 2009 so it's been getting by with its single instrument but it was still able with that one instrument to do stuff like take a bunch of candidate exoplanets found by tess and verify them it also uh, was used in combination with data from hubble and kepler to do other interesting like exoplanet searches so lots of use out of spitzer way beyond its lifetime what i think is really interesting is why it's at the end of its life now it's not because that last instrument isn't working it's because so it's in a heliocentric orbit so it's an orbit around the sun and not the earth and it's been drifting away from the earth and the angle of its solar panels and its antenna to earth have gone to the point where every time it wants to communicate with us it has to turn and it turns its solar panels away from the sun and at some point which we've reached now the amount of turn it takes so the amount of time it's not getting light from the sun to give it power is going to become too much for it to actually continue to function. So, um, but they've done a lot like, uh, so the batteries basically, it turns away and the batteries die and before it can turn back. So we've reached that point now, but it's again, way more than it was built for. It was built for 30 degree maximum shift. 
Um, and they actually had to hack its software and mechanisms to make it work at up to where it is now, 53 degrees that it turns away from the sun uh, in order to send messages back to Earth. But it's reached the limit, and basically they can they can keep it running uh, with the solar panels pointed at the sun, but it won't talk to us because it can't point back to earth. So at that point you just gotta, you gotta shut it down and, and have it reach the end of its life. So that's where we are now. Orbital mechanics come for us all is really the story here, right? Not death. Yeah, that's what it is. That's right. No, it's the, it's uh yeah, it's, it's uh your heliocentric orbit. It's, actually that works too. You know, you take trips around the sun and eventually uh, it has to end. You brought it back to death. Come on. Happy birthday again. Anyway, good job. Good job, Spitzer. No, it's a great it's a great story because it is. Spitzer had a lifespan. Spitzer was going to die after five years, and in fact, it lived 16 years. And it spent the last, uh, what, uh, 10, 11 of those years on one of its three instruments, and it was still incredibly useful and in doing great science. So it's a great story. Heartwarming. We got a, a orbital mechanic issue, death issue, when they talk about a little closer to Earth as well. So... Uh, DirecTV has satellite. It was built by Boeing. Uh, you may have seen this in the news because it, it has made headlines because it is um, there are concerns that it is going to explode due to battery damage. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Like literally it has a battery thing and they're worried that the next time that does it like a charging cycle, it's going to explode. And yeah. on orbit satellites exploding Not good. is really bad because it leaves debris little pieces of fast moving destructive debris everywhere and it's in a geosynchronous uh, orbit geostationary orbit so the idea is that it's orbiting it's high enough up that it's orbiting the earth at the same rate that the earth is rotating so it's like it never moves and that's how i mean that's how satellite dishes work is that the, the satellite stays there it doesn't pass uh away over the horizon it stays where it is in geostationary orbit but the problem is lots of satellites are there and you cannot have something that explodes and just spews garbage all over that orbit it's uh that would be bad you know it's funny we talk about exploding batteries and tech sometimes and this is this is on a whole new scale unfortunately and you can't just take it down to the apple store Mm -mm. can't can't do that so Mm -mm. its orbit will soon take into earth's shadow so then the batteries will be relied upon and then, uh, boom, kaboom, satellite kaboom. <laughs> it has been, <laughs> it is being moved into a graveyard orbit. So it is higher. It will limit the debris, uh, into an area where most satellites would be, uh, below the debris field that is, <laughs> seems to be pending. Um, and there's not enough propellant to, to re-enter into the atmosphere and burn it up safely. So it, cause it's way out to geostationary orbit. So really the only right. thing to but, do is to continue to raise its orbit and kind of get it out of the way of other things. Yeah. It's funny. So it's like it, geostationary is great, but it, it's too far away to deorbit it. And so they want to do this. I've never heard this concept before, but I love it. It's the graveyard orbit, which is basically, we're going to take it up further to a place where nobody really needs to go because, you know, if you want to be if you want to orbit the earth, you could come down lower. Um, you, so they put it up in the graveyard orbit where there's kind of nothing and mm-hmm. then it can explode. And, you know, that seems to be the best they can do is they can't stop it from exploding, but they can move it to someplace where it will explode and not hurt anybody. Right. So that is, uh, February 25th or so should, uh, that should take place. And they, their assumption is that basically as soon as it hits the batteries, because it's been 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 able to use the solar panels, 
but when you're in the earth shadow, you can't do that. So yeah. th- this is coming up, and uh, I'd imagine this will be a, fo- a follow-up item in future episodes. It's not every day a satellite explodes, thankfully. And by the way, uh, if you're a DirecTV customer, I guess you'll be thrilled to know that this was actually a decommissioned, it's a backup. So it was in the Constellation, but it wasn't actually being used to relay TV. Programming hasn't been for a decade, I think. So um, it, it's not going to, it's not like the TV's are going to go off when the satellite goes goes right. down. It's they they direct TV and all of the like satellite internet and satellite TV providers and all that. They generally have a constellation of satellites and they can move them around and commission and decommission them as necessary. So this is not uh putting a hole in anybody's TV broadcast. It's just uh they got to do something with it and they can't bring it back down. So we have a uh, one last pre-flight checklist item and that is about cookies in space. So can't can't go wrong with this. No mm. exploding satellites, no space telescopes that are being put out put out of service. Cookies in space. Yeah, I mean literally DoubleTree Hotels cookies are what they they baked and if you if you've ever stayed at a DoubleTree when this their this is their thing, this is their gimmick right. is they want it to feel homey and so not only does it smell like cookies when you're checking in but they give you cookies. They give you two warm cookies when you check in. Um, which I think I believe our diets, neither of us is allowed to have them. No, <laughs> which is super, no, <laughs> super sad. But anyway, they so DoubleTree Hotels uh, like uh, worked with NASA to do this experiment of baking cookies in space. They did. So th- these were sent up uh, back in November, and they they have been uh, they have been put into uh, what it's called the zero G oven, where they're baked. Mm-hmm. They're baked inside of these. Uh, containers that look like they're screwed shut. Like it is a very industrial looking cookie container. And it it seems like uh, they just look like regular cookies. So on Earth, it takes 16 to 18 minutes to cook these. Um, and uh, it took about... In space, it took two yeah, hours. <laughs> it took a little bit longer <laughs> in well, microgravity. There's, there's weird stuff, right? Because like there's convection so that like you heat up the air and the air has to move. So I assume that their oven is like a convection oven where they've got heating elements and they've got fans that are able to circulate that hot air around the cookie. But obviously, in whether it's the just the zero G or also the limitations of the of the space oven, but uh, it's not quite an easy bake oven. Like you're too young to remember this, I think. But they used to have this easy bake oven, which is basically like a hot light bulb, mm-hmm. and you could put su- you could plug it in. It was a toy. It was a hot light bulb, and it could bake a uh, very limited definition of bake stuff if you stuck it in there. It, it's kind of like that, though. I get the sense that this is not a particularly efficient uh, way of of baking it. But they and they underbaked some of the cookies before realized sort of the best cookies. The ones that smelled the best and looked the best, it took a couple of hours to do. Um, and we haven't even mentioned the the biggest travesty of this entire thing, which is the astronauts who baked these cookies were not and smelled them were not allowed to eat them. That is sad. I mean, they weren't authorized for space eating, and uh, also they I, there are all as we've talked about before worries about crumbs in space. There are crumb concerns. That said, can you imagine being up in space all that time and then you get fresh-based cookies, you can smell them, and you can't eat them? I mean, it's kind of how, how it feels if my wife makes cookies for the kids. It's like, oh, are those for me? No, you can't eat those. Oh. No, you can't touch them. No, it's true. I did have that I did have that feeling. It's like walking into a double tree when you're gluten-free and being yeah. like, oh, man. <laughs> uh, that's not for me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't have that cookie. It makes me Still a sad. cool story. I don't really mind like the double tree tie-in. I think that's kind of cool. And uh, 
Yeah, space ovens have a ways to go is what we're saying. The technology is not quite there yet. Also, finally, there's a cookie in the Air and Space Museum. And we're not kidding. They are actually donating cookie to Smithsonian Institution for the Air and Space Museum. It's the first, th- first thing baked on orbit, you know? Yeah. There's a joke in there somewhere, probably. There's a Yeah, I was going to say there's probably like a Buzz Aldrin joke oh. there, but <laughs> I don't know. Woo! Okay, so moving on. <laughs> We have a new House NASA authorization bill. We have a bunch of links in the show notes about this. I think the best one I've read is from the Planetary Society uh, about this authorization act. So we got to talk about what this is not. This is not a budget bill for NASA. This is a a bill that speaks to NASA, what NASA's priorities should be within that budget, if you will. So it's kind of a, it's kind of their to-do list. This is significantly different from the one that was put forth by the Senate uh, late last year. This, of course, is coming from the Democratic-led House of Representatives. As we talk about these things, you will realize this sounds like a bill put forth by Democrats, because as we've talked about, Democratic politicians are all about Mars and Republicans are all about the moon. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. I don't know who's right or wrong, but that's just how it works. It it seems to be, and some of it I wonder if it's really just the polarization of, well, if you're for that, then I'm for something different because I want to, everything has to be us versus them. And, you know, you know what they say, you know, Democrats are from Mars and Republicans are from the, the moon. I think anyway. I've seen that on a bumper sticker. Yeah. Well, there should be a bumper. Maybe we should make that bumper sticker. Because um, <laughs> it's it, And it's just like, not even taking sides. It's just true, folks. It's true. Um, I guess Obama was maybe from an asteroid. But um, anyway, everybody's got a different goal. And this is the Democrats in the House Science Committee saying, um, we, we want something different than what the administration is doing. Um, and so the gateway is a football, again. Like where it's like, what is it? What's it called? They want to rename the gateway, the gateway to Mars. Take that. Oh boy. Um, They did, to their credit, this, this bill moves the moon landing date back to 2028, which is probably more realistic, but. Right. Which is where um, it was before sort of the Artemis 2024 push happened. What was that? a, A year ago, year and a half ago. Right. So it's basically a, you know, let's roll it back to what the sort of previous administration's conception of this was going to be. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's a it's a Republicans want one thing, Democrats want another thing in terms of where we're going and why. Although it is, I mean, it is saying, no, we should go to the moon, mm-hmm. but it's saying we should ma- think of Gateway as more of a cislunar space station. It doesn't actually have to be in lunar orbit. It just needs to be somewhere in cislunar space, a deep space gateway. Um, and it does want us to land on the moon, but, but it wants to put it in the context of going to Mars, which honestly, I do see um, NASA doing as well, right? Like, as focused as some some parts of the administration are on landing on the moon by that date, uh, generally they're kind of putting it in the context of a larger kind of like move. Then we move on to Mars from there, uh, which is smart because what they don't want to have happen is what happened with Apollo, right? Which is we went back to the moon and then we stop and that's it. Right. You got to then what? Either then lunar base, then lunar prospecting, or then commercial interests on the moon while we go and and push on to Mars. Um, but the, but this bill focuses on the moon as the, like the testing ground and the stopover and then off to Mars we go. 
Yeah, so there there are a couple of of points in this bill that really drive home really drive home that point. So it would set a goal of at least two crewed lunar landings per year after 2028. So again, that 2024 date that Artemis has been pushing sort of off the table in this version of the bill. And it would prohibit Moon to Mars from funding non-critical path activities that don't contribute to the goal of landing humans on Mars. So you can do stuff at the moon as long as there is a tangible, helpful reason you're doing it with an eye cut towards the red planet. So things like uh, lunar outpost, things like uh, lunar mining for uh, you know ice and water and fuel and all those things, that can only be done if it is a proving ground for Mars. I don't know how you draw lines around that. I don't know how you would define, well, this thing will help us on Mars, but this one won't, but that's kind of what the language says in the bill. It also includes upgrades to the SLS, everyone's favorite rocket, including an enhanced exploration upper stage, which is not a thing yet, and require all lunar surface missions to use the SLS as their launch vehicle. So we've spoken about this in the past where the SLS gets tied to a launch or tied to a mission, and this bill would do that with all lunar surface missions. It, the, this doesn't call out you know, lifting things for the gateway, but if you're going to go to the surface, you've got to use a- SLS to, to get there. Hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah, I love legislating the use of the SLS. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite. Uh, I have mine, too. So, I mean, look, this bill, it, it has to be reconciled with what's in the Senate, which is very different. And so who, who knows what of, of any of this will move forward. But a lot of this reads, you know, very similar fashion as NASA's sort of direction under the, under the Obama administration. Even the moon to Mars language was used by the previous administration. And we, we've, we've, I don't know how many times we've said this on the show over the years, NASA ends up getting sort of bounced around between political parties and whoever is in power. And it happens frequently enough where they can't really make head, like really make a move in any one direction because they need sustained time and budget to do that sort of thing. Even if we don't think Artemis 2024 is possible, reintroducing this sort of thing would not only definitely sink 2024, but it kind of takes the winds out of the, the sale of that program a little bit. And, you know, we can all feel differently about that, but I, I do think it's pretty clear that the sort of jerking around that NASA is just, uh, it's just tied to just what, how it is, does hamper our ability to move forward in these areas. Yeah. What you really want is, is for the parties to figure out some way where they can both kind of get what they want. Um, which I think there's, some of that here, like I said, about about saying we're going to go to the moon but on to Mars is potentially there's room there to be like, yes, yes, of course, we'll go on to Mars, the administration mm-hmm. can say. But the moon is our primary focus right now. And like there are ways to do it to stop this because the the big problem has been, as we've detailed since we started this show in a previous administration, that uh, every four or eight years, all of the goals shift and the amount of momentum that is lost is enormous. So I hope that we're not in a situation where we're going to once again have, you know, NASA lose all momentum 
because nobody can agree on what it's supposed to do next. Yeah, I mean, this this bill states accrued mission to orbit Mars by 2033. Like, if that's even possible, hmm. you've, you've got to shortchange the lunar stuff because you, you can't do both at once with the current budget, right? Things will have to give. Yeah. I don't. I don't know how I feel about this bill. I, I. I mean, I've sort of resigned myself to Artemis being the way forward, at least for now. But I. I just don't know. And yeah. time, you know, it's going to get ironed out one way or the other in Congress. I mean, as much as I would like to see humans on Mars in my lifetime, it is a. I think the realistic thing to do is to go back to the moon. And use it as as a way to. I mean, I, I think this premise is right, which is you go to the moon and you build the gateway in cislunar space, and you're doing these things to rebuild your ability to function in deep space, you know, beyond Earth orbit, mm-hmm. and that's step one. And then there may be spinoff things on the moon in terms of long duration stay or in terms of finding resources there. There there may be all of that, but you also keep an eye on this as development to lead to the next step, which is the Mars mission. Um, the danger is the moon becomes a, a PR exercise because really everybody's just focused on getting to Mars as fast as possible. And then with Mars, you're going to end up in that same situation where it's so hard to go to Mars and so expensive to go to Mars that even if we do go to Mars, what do we do when we get there? Right. Do we do we just stand there and then leave and then come back and then that's it and we never go again because it's so expensive? There are proposals. There's some interesting ones that I've seen um, about Mars exploration that I think are, are worth talking about, which is if you start to not get obsessed with the boots on the ground thing, um, one of the great advantages of going to Mars is you can orbit Mars with people. And have them be remote controlling all sorts of different things that are down on the surface. Rovers, um, you know, drones, various flying things. And do lots of research and lots of science about Mars without actually setting foot on it as a human. Because if you're there, you can remote control everything. And you've got nearly instant control over those things. Whereas we have to pre-program everything and it's very inefficient. Um, so you could go and be in orbit or even like tether to one of the moons of Mars and do a lot of work kind of via telepresence. Uh, the challenge is that people are going to want human beings standing on the surface. So, you know, but, and that's way more expensive. So it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, but in general, I'm kind of open to the idea that we really got to stand up and walk before we can run. And that means getting our moon muscles back. I think I think that's right. Uh, Jim Bryanstein, who of course spent time in Congress, uh, had an update on NASA's website just yesterday, uh, talking about the bill and you know sharing concerns that it constrains their approach to lunar exploration. In his words, and yeah. you know it it says what you think it would say, and I just I thought it was noticeable because because he spent time in Congress, he wades into these things, and I, I think with a level of knowledge and sort of ability to handle things that's different than previous administrators. And, you know, he, he, he says that he welcomes the ability to work with the committee. And, you know, uh, he does point out that this is a bipartisan committee. This bill came out of a bipartisan process that is controlled by Democrats, but there are Republicans on the committee. And, you know, it's, it's very uh, political in the way that he has to play. But 
all in all, like I read the letters, like yeah, I kind of I see what you're saying. Like it doesn't bother me that he he's wading into this. Yeah, I, and I could I could make the argument that um, barring a construction where there's like a White House head of science policy and space policy, and then a scientist in charge of NASA, um, which would be another way to structure it, having a politician who knows Congress in charge of NASA, which was a big criticism of Bridenstein when he was nominated. There's a lot to be said for it. It's a government bureaucracy. It's a political football. Having somebody like Bridenstine who knows the people on the committee in the House and who can try, to, like a politician, to say, thank you, we're aligned on a lot of issues, I've got some concerns about this, but like to play that political game, as much as we kind of ideally want it to not be the case... It is the case. And so having somebody who's a, a, you know, who knows where the bodies are buried and who understands how these these processes work politically in charge of NASA, you know, yes, you want people who care about the science at all levels. And I do think Jim Bridenstine actually does care about the science, but you can't have somebody in these roles who isn't really good at the politics, too. So and I've been impressed with him. I think I think it's important to have somebody who speaks the language of the people in the government of the elected representatives, because in the end, that's how policy gets made. And the policy is going to determine what NASA does. All right. Uh, you have a, a, a mini book club announcement or, or topic. But before we get into Challenger, I had one thing I wanted to mention quickly. It's a book that I read and it, it touches on a bunch of the things that we've been talking about here in terms of things like going to Mars, in terms of finding resources in the solar system, like mining asteroids you mentioned at one point, in terms of the value of having people uh, because of telepresence being you know instantaneous versus having these long delays that maybe the reason you send people is not because you want to have their boots in the dust but because you want them to be able to operate all the robots with no turnaround time or very little turnaround time and there's a book that's about all these things that i just read that's pretty good that people out there who listen to this show might like called delta v by daniel suarez um and it's about Daniel Suarez has done his work. Uh, there are a lot of characters in there that will be that will seem like parts of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and other kind of space oriented tycoons and what their different strategies about space are. I would say that one of the main characters in the book is like a part of Elon Musk's personality. And then there's another character who is another part of Elon Musk's personality. There's definitely a lot of Elon Musk uh infusion in some of these characters but it is about a a businessman who decides to build a uh an asteroid mining mission in order to jumpstart the earth's economy and the global economy and of course how do you do that you have to train a bunch of astronauts he's doing some of it in secret there's some interesting politics and uh and government stuff going on um as well as the story of the people who are training and vying to be the astronauts who are sent on this first mission to deep space to mine an asteroid and it's an adventure and it's fun and there's lots of interesting characters but uh so if you're uh if you like the the fiction novels about space stuff, uh, I've got a new one in my little uh, collection of things that are worth reading. So Delta V by Daniel Suarez. Do they have to split an asteroid in half to save Earth? I, I was going to say... Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It is... The, actually, my elevator pitch for this book, which I didn't mention here because it is a sensitive topic, is this is kind of like Armageddon if the science is actually good and also the asteroid isn't going to hit Earth. It's, it's actually... Um, 
uh is it Bennu the one that that is like it's or no it's oh which asteroid is it it's one of the asteroids we've talked about where we've actually sent uh, a probe to and that's the setting of that's where they're going is is okay yeah Bennu is where Osiris Rex is gonna do a sample return is it or is it where the Japanese one is Oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's it's one of the asteroids we've talked about. And the premise is, could we build a, a ship and send people there? And then what would be involved in mining the contents of the asteroid? And how would that prove? Because theoretically, an asteroid is worth a trillion dollars, right? And the argument of the book is, um, you know, you you need to get you need to get people there and you need to actually prove that this is worth it. At which point, if you know, if industry, if if, if everybody on the earth knows that if you spend um, 50 billion dollars you get a trillion dollars back then you're going to have a, you're going to have a commercial mining industry right like if it's if it's that simple that like you you will get a huge reward for your investment and we proved that you could do it and that's the premise of the book and of, of course it's not that easy because it's a book and it's got adventure and action and suspense in it but uh it's good and it's yes it's like armageddon only in that very small way okay so just making sure just yeah. wanted to double check. Yeah. So uh, as we mentioned, today is the 34th anniversary of the Challenger disaster. It's kind of a, a weird year to be looking back at this, but it landed on the day that we were recording, so we thought it would be a uh, a nice fit. Uh, this was shuttle mission STS-51L. It was the 25th overall shuttle mission. And its main objective was to observe Halley's Comet for six days, and it was to deploy, because remember the space shuttle was a a pickup truck, deploying the second in a series of tracking and data relay satellites, Several, actually many of which were put in place by the shuttle program. It also included, of course, the uh, Teacher in Space project. This was first announced in 1984 by President Reagan. The project would carry teachers into space as payload specialists. They're non-astronaut civilians, so that they didn't enter the astronaut corps. They weren't part of the armed forces in any way. They were civilians who would go to space and then return to their classrooms and share their experiences with their students and you know students around the world, really. Yeah, I remember when this was going on because I was in school, obviously, when this was all happening. I was in high school. Um, and there were thousands, I think 11,000 teachers, uh, who applied. Um, and then they kind of like got a, a a finalist candidate of, it's sort of like that book I was just talking about. It's like, how do we, (laughs) you know, who's going to be the one? And then they went down to 114 teachers and then they went down to a final 10. And in the end, the, uh, the winner was Krista McAuliffe, who was a, a teacher from New Hampshire. Um, so in July 1985, she was announced as the first teacher in space. And then they also had a backup, Barbara Morgan. They both took a year off of work to train for the mission. And they were going to do science experiments and lessons taught from space, showing you know what we can learn from people being in space. The, uh, the plan was a uh, spacecraft tour, all this stuff being you know done on video and sent back to Earth. I think they were going to do Q&A with the students. Um, so the ultimate field trip and, uh, <laughs> where we've been and where we're going and why. And there's a whole, this was a very ambitious idea to get a civilian teacher in space because the idea was to get more people and young people enthusiastic about space and science and engage with, uh, with somebody who was more like them was a civilian, um, and not a, uh, you know, a, a special astronaut kind of person. Right. And by the 25th shuttle mission, I would imagine that a lot of the public had 
sort of lost interest in the shuttle program and what NASA was doing. Yeah. And, and this was a way to kind of recapture the public's attention. And from everything I've read, it really did that, right? The people knew about this. They were talking about it. This was a big deal, right? Yeah, it got it got this covered on the news in a way that it wasn't before. The best thing, I, the best way I could describe it, and obviously the media environment was very different sure. in the mid '80s. But I'd say it's a little bit like, as somebody who's interested in space today, you're aware that SpaceX keeps firing off rockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it was kind of like that. It was sort of like it becomes a little routine, and the space shuttle had become kind of routine. It felt like, you know, oh, there's another space shuttle today. In fact, I remember on the morning of the Challenger disaster, waking up and my little clock radio went off to wake me up before I had to, you know, get up and get ready to go to school. And I remember that at the end of, uh, you know, the top of the hour block of news on the radio, it said, um, you know, cold weather at the Cape makes it a question whether the Space Shuttle Challenger will be able to take off this morning or not. And it was like a, you know, 20 second thing. It was a minor, uh, a minor note, not invisible. The comings and goings of space stuff was, was, there but it was not uh, a focus and the teacher in space gave it more of a focus i'm sure actually that that news report i don't remember this but i'm sure it said including krista mcauliffe the first teacher in space because that was a thing for nasa to hang its hat on so to understand what happened here we need to talk about the solid rocket boosters for a second all of their sections were joined at the factory but the last section and those were joined in the vehicle assembly building the these joints were put together with a pair of o-rings so if you can imagine sort of you had a uh, a joint and you needed to fill that joint or you don't you just don't want metal on metal you need something that can expand and contract to fill the void where this joint is met and so a pair of o-rings were designed for this and the the more i've read about this i've read this uh, i've read about this a lot over the years but and rereading a lot of it prepping for this it's so wild to me that this thing ever flew. So as early as 1971, burn through of these O-rings was considered a failure that would leave the crew without an abort plan. So you, you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, there's not a way out of the shuttle like you had with, with capsule designs where you can do an in-flight abort. The shuttle was not designed with anything like that. It just it couldn't be. As early as 71, it was understood that if something goes wrong with the SRBs, that's um, you know, that's a, a very easily a, a fatal accident. It was known that these O-rings could cause issues as the boosters heated up and expanded. And as early as the second shuttle launch, O-ring burn through had been documented. So as hot gases are rushing through the solid rocket boosters, uh, some of it is getting in contact with those O-rings and getting past them and and burning them, sort of wearing them down. You can think about it like erosion. In fact, the report talks a lot, of, uses that term a lot, where the gases are eating away at these O-rings. And this was a known issue. This was not a, a secret. It was not a surprise that this was happening. Yeah, in hindsight, pretty pretty disturbing that this was this was there. But the idea was we got it. It happens, but it's never it's never been a problem right um and in hindsight and this is one of those things that you know they're the, all the legendary stories of what like richard Feynman found in the investigation of it that you know 
in hindsight, it was it was kind of denial. Like there were the it, it would come perilously close, and there were things that were known about how they handled temperature and the fact that there would be these flare ups that would happen, and and that there would be burn throughs, and there was no accident, there was no explosion, but it was still like disturbing because they weren't supposed to do that, and um, it was again in hindsight, uh, it was clearly a problem and uh, a systemic failure that it didn't get dealt with. A lot of that language you could repeat about Columbia. That's not the topic today, but that's what I thought of when you were when you were speaking. For sure, for sure. It's it's a it's a very similar thing. You and I both read a lot of books about both of these uh both mm-hmm. of these incidents and it's uh it's a it, it's a truly I will, I'll I'll put in my obligatory thing on Amazon. I think you can buy uh a TV movie starring William Hurt called The Cha- The Challenger Disaster that is uh uh it's really good. It's a really good uh, TV movie if you haven't seen it. I think you have to buy it. I don't think you can stream it, um, but uh, it's uh, it's good. It's he's he's uh, Feynman, and it's all about the investigating uh, what happened. So I'll just I'll make that obligatory plug that I have done before. Right now, it's great. It, it really is is really good. So in eighty uh, four, two years before this, on a flight of Discovery. The first occurrence of blow-by was discovered. So at this point, hot gases had eaten their way through the primary O-ring, but were stopped by the second O-ring. So there were two of them, and it, it ate through the first. This was considered an acceptable risk, even though they had seen this for, at this point, over 10 years. This was the first time that it had actually made its way through the first one, but they still said, hey, this is okay. We understand what's happening here. By 1985, seven of the nine launches uh, that year had O-ring erosion or hot gas blow by this. I mean, uh, we keep repeating this. This was a this was not a surprise. What went wrong on Challenger was a known issue. And Marshall Space Center and the manufacturer of the SRBs, Morton Thicol, they knew the issues were there. And in uh, April of that year, uh, a Challenger mission showed erosion of the second ring. So this is continuing to progress. We had erosion of the first one, then burn through of the first, and now erosion of the second. At this point, they said, hey, maybe we should redesign this. But no one called for the shuttle to be grounded until a fix was in place. Yeah. Yeah. Just Yeah, it was It was all known. It was all known. So that th- did that bring us up to uh, to the date in question? It does. All right, so there were a bunch of delays. Ultimately, January 28th was going to be the day they were going to launch. It was a cold day, like I said. I heard on the radio about this. Um, They expected it would be unusually cold. Even Florida gets cold sometimes. Mm -hmm. They felt like the temperatures, uh, the low, the morning of the 28th, would be around 30 degrees Fahrenheit, so below freezing. That's, I think, minus 1 Celsius. It's below freezing. Um, And that is the minimum temperature that was permitted uh, in those days for a shuttle launch. Um, the shuttle was really never certified to operate in temperatures that low. There was no test data on a bunch of the components. The, you know, I think the feeling was that they, there was a pressure to launch and not scrub again and not, and not, there had already been delays and though, and so it, it seemed pretty obvious that they should have just said, it's too cold. We can't launch. Um, they didn't do it. The people from Morton Thiokol, uh, the engineers there had expressed concerns the year before about the O-rings in low temperature situations. So it was right there, the idea that the O-rings could get brittle when they were cold. 
Um, when they made this forecast of the cold weather, NASA contacted Morton Thiokol and they said, they said you should postpone the launch. NASA pushed back on that. The engineers at Morton Thiokol again said, uh, we don't think this is a good idea. And then there was a management call later where Thiokol and NASA agreed the launch should go ahead. And this is one of those moments of like, wait a second. How did that how did that happen? What was that process? And it feels very much like all the experts said don't go. And then there was a back and forth between the higher ups to like, come on, you know, come on, let's do this. And that they they somebody browbeat somebody else into saying, OK. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you, you because you had these engineers for years raising concerns and like there's way too much to go into this, like you should go read on your own because it is the more you read about it, the more disturbing it is that yeah. they predicted this to the T, these engineers, and then they were basically shut out of the loop and said, hey, you know. Man, manager to manager, we're going to do this. Yeah. Um, the night before the launch, temperatures dropped colder than expected to 18 Fahrenheit minus 8 Celsius. And ice formed all over the launch pad and the tower. There are photos of this online. It is unbelievable to me that they thought it was safe to launch. I mean, huge sheets of ice. If yeah. you can imagine the these towers, right, big metal structures, and just huge icicles and ice sheets all over the place. And it's Florida, right? So there's a lot of moisture in the air. Yeah. So you're getting condensation and then the condensation freezes and you end up with this just huge amount of ice. And yet uh, they decided to go forward. And um, and that brings us to that moment. So uh, at 1138 in the morning, Eastern time. So I'm like, literally, I'm in my high school gym class <laughs> at this point. Um, the space shuttle took off. And um, in viewing the film later, because they've got film cameras everywhere, taking mm -hmm. pictures, taking angles of the shuttle, even in those days before the accident, they added more later, but they had film and they looked at the launch film and that at 0.678 seconds past launch, there were big puffs of dark gray smoke from the right side solid rocket booster that is a burn through that was a brittle o-ring getting blasted through by hot gas from the solid rocket booster because the o-ring couldn't expand to uh, you know and and show its resilience because it was frozen and therefore got brittle um and that meant aluminum oxides from the solid rocket booster propellant uh sealed the joint they melted the metal but um, it was a temporary kind of like accidental drip, dripping of metal to kind of create a seal. And then right. the um, combine the continued heat from the propellant and the uh, wind shear. Um, so they launch and they and, and everything kind of we think of it as being like a solid item. But the wind, wind shear is causing it to bend at least a little bit. And if you can imagine sort of like a little a frozen thing think of like popping an ice cube out of an ice cube tray it's that mm -hmm. kind of thing it moves a little bit it pops off the uh this little sort of temporary welded thing that happened accidentally and that is that moment where the flame can now escape out from the srbs can escape out that joint on the right side srb at 64 seconds after launch that flame burns through the external tank so for, if you don't remember how the shuttle is configured um, the shuttle stack is 
a giant center tank that the su- shuttle is sitting on. Um, it's not a rocket. The, it's a fuel tank, and that fuel is going into the shuttle, and then the shuttle's main engines on the back are blasting out the contents of that. So the shuttle's got its own fuel tank, but for launch, it's using the giant external tank. And the SRBs are on the sides, and these are the solid rocket boosters that give it extra lift, and once they're ignited, they can't be turned off, because that's how the chemical propulsion works on the on the solid rocket boosters. They can't be throttled, they just go. So... Um, if you can picture that, the shuttle stack, you've got flame shooting out of the right solid rocket booster. What's happening is the flame is shooting at the fuel tank, and it's burning through the fuel tank insulation down to where there's an enormous amount of combustible liquid oxygen, mm-hmm. I think, fuel. Yep. And uh, at 64 seconds... This is the point where the flame has burned through. It's been coming out of that SRB. It is now bla- it is now burned through the tank. It is going to ignite the liquid oxygen in one giant burst. Um, they pass. They have passed through um, maximum dynamic pressure of the vehicle, which is why you get the call from Dick Scobie, who was the commander of Challenger, saying "Go it throttle up." Um, which people are like, oh no, they raised the throttle and that's what uh, caused the explosion. And that's not it. They 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 had throttled up already um, after going through max Q. Um, but that happened to be the moment where this happened. So it's burning through the right SRB separates at 72 seconds. So just a little bit later, it separates from the bottom of the stack. So now it's starting to come apart. Um, and then at 73 seconds is when the uh, fuel tank ruptures, the SRB hits it, everything ignites, the shuttle is engulfed in a giant fireball, uh, it's just an enormous explosion because all of that fuel that's supposed to take the shuttle to orbit is igniting at once, um, and uh, the shuttle begins to break apart, and they're at about 48,000 feet when this happens. I put in the show notes the footage from CNN, from from their coverage of the day, and you can see in their footage the SRBs pulling away from the fireball. Like you said, those don't have throttles. They don't have on-off switches. Once they're lit, they're lit. Uh, they were still burning, still flying, and they were remotely destroyed by the range safety officer, from what I've yeah. read. They basically were burning out as that happened, so there's not a big secondary explosion as those things are are you know, blown apart effectively. Right. But when you're, when you're launching a missile or a a rocket or whatever, there's a range safety officer. And what they do is they rig these things with explosives so that they can be destroyed remotely. If there's uh, you know, if, if you don't, what you don't want is the rocket to go out of control and then like smash into where people are or something like that. So the range safety officer's got the, got the button that's basically like, I'm going to blow these things up so that they don't hurt anybody. And that, that happens. And you can actually see that happening that the SRBs are swirling around and then they kind of, break yeah um and fall apart because the the range safety officer has has killed them there inside the shuttle there was a the crew compartment it was a two-level compartment and it was a a hardened robust section of the shuttle it's not a capsule right it's not like you know the the orion capsule but it is a reinforced area that, that they were all within during launch that came basically out of the shuttle more or less intact, it peaked at a at a height of about sixty five thousand feet because you know there's all there's momentum here of all this uh, now debris still traveling uh, upward and down range, 
and it remained intact as the orbiter broke apart basically around it. And there is evidence that at least three of the crew were perhaps at least briefly conscious after the breakup. Three of the four uh, egress air packs that they carried were activated, and the air supply that was used was consistent with the consumption during their post-breakup trajectory. From the time the orbiter broke up until it hit the ocean, that much air was was gone from these three packs. Additionally, several control switches on uh, Mike Smith's panel, he was the pilot, had been moved from their launch positions. And these switches don't move on their own. They are like locked into place with these trigger covers. Impact with the ocean cannot have changed them. So there's a lot of evidence that at least for some amount of time, they were they were uh, awake. Now, it's unknown how long that, that happened. At 65,000 feet, there's not enough air to remain conscious. So if this thing was not airtight, then they then they would have blacked out uh, before then. But uh, it is it is horrifyingly possible that they were aware of what was going on. They hit the ocean at some 207 miles an hour with deceleration impact of well over 200 g, which uh, is the cause of death. Yeah, and this is the thing. It's un- nobody really knows um, about whether they were conscious. Uh, they were conscious, at least some of them initially, but whether they remained conscious until impact or whether they uh, passed out. But it, it's one of the, the most horrifying things that we discovered long after the fact because this wasn't known and then it was not communicated by NASA because they did not want people thinking about this. We all assumed that the explosion killed the astronauts. And the truth is the astronauts probably survived the explosion and the, it was the crew compartment hitting the ocean that killed them, which brings up all of those issues about crew escape. We talked about commercial crew, the importance of commercial uh, crew having crew escape earlier. This is one of the things about the shuttle design is the shuttle wasn't designed with a crew escape system. There was nothing they could have done once the vehicle broke up for them to have touched down safely. And this was one of the conversations that everybody had about the shuttle design afterward. And it's really one of the reasons the shuttle was decommissioned. There are, there are lots of them, but one of them is there was really no way to refit the shuttle to truly make it something where the crew could escape from. There were they put in some things where like if there was a if the shuttle was intact but it was going to crash, they could I think they could get out and and parachute out of the shuttle or something, but it was like not really likely and didn't cover very many scenarios. The truth is this was not ever built into the design that the shuttle would somehow be broken apart and that the astronauts would be able to escape in some way. Um, And that was just, there was nothing they could do once that happened. Debris recovery and investigation took place immediately. Uh, This crew cabin was found on March 7th with the remains of the astronauts inside. Uh, The right SRB was also located, complete with this hole burned through the sidewall, confirming what, you know, all we just spoke about. Uh, and this is where the Rogers Commission comes in. So this presidential commission was charged with investigating the accident. Uh, it is was put together by people outside of NASA, right? You don't want yep. NASA management investigating NASA management in these situations. Uh, it was named after its chairman, William Rogers. This guy's resume is really impressive. He was attorney general from 57 to 61, secretary of state a few years later. And he was uh, put in charge of this this commission that 
they their reach was really wide. They they not only spoke to lots of people at NASA and Thaikal, but all this debris was you know hauled ashore and was laid out in a way to help reconstruct what had happened. Yep, uh, this was all overseen by by this group, and this was a process that took quite a while. This is not something you wrap up in six weeks, right? This is a a lengthy process. So I meant I mentioned that. Um that uh, TV movie and there's books about this too. Like this, this is one of the things you talk about Rogers. Rogers is a political figure and he's appointed to, you know, be independent from NASA, but there's also this feeling with a lot of these appointments, it's political figures and military figures that um, the Reagan administration wants this uh, solved, but it also, you get the sense very strongly from the reports from the the period and the TV movie definitely tells the story that they kind of want to sweep it all under the rug and sort of minimize the damage from this and move along with NASA going full force forward with the space shuttle program. And what ends up happening is a few people on the committee, most notably Feynman, who had to be talked into uh, going and he had already been diagnosed with cancer um, and he gets there and realizes that this is not really what he thought it was in terms of trying to find the truth. Um, but, uh, and as has come out over the years since then, he did actually have like-minded people. He was a, a, a foil. Uh, he got to be the front man. But other people, including Sally Ride, who was the astronaut re- representative on the panel, she, it turns out, after she died, it was revealed, had passed a lot of information on from inside NASA that would otherwise have been suppressed. Um, and Feynman got that. And there is uh, an Air Force gen- general named Donald Katina, who Bruce uh, Greenwood plays in the movie, who also was deeply skeptical uh, about what was going on and aided in this. And Feynman, you know, famously um, did a demo during uh, a televised presentation of freezing an O-ring in ice water and then snapping it. And it was very much kind of like that the jig was up and the people who were yeah. trying to minimize this and make sure that the, all of the contractors could walk away and that they would just kind of keep on going. Um, Feynman and a bunch of other people who helped Feynman um, kind of brought it up in front of the press to a point where they um, they couldn't deny it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was that was that turning point. And I'm sure it was more complex than this because nothing is ever this simple. But like that was a big part of this turn to realizing NASA's culture was broken. This happened because of NASA's culture and it's in a relationship with the contractors and that the whole thing needed to be revisited. Yeah, that example of the O-rings, I don't think can be overstated in its importance because it it was such a clear example to the public. As you said, it was on television. Like anybody could understand that, right? Because we we've all we all understand what happens like rubber material when it gets yeah. cold, and just doing a very simple demonstration really showed people what you know what the heart of this was and. You know, how many people are watching these sorts of things on TV that really get it, right? But this ends up on the evening news, right? This example exactly. is what we're still talking about 34 years later. Yeah. And this is the, you knew uh, this was going to happen. There's a whole paper trail, but like the clear visual of just like, if I put this washer in ice water and then and then try to bend it, it falls apart. And this is what happened to the space shuttle. And that is, it It, it was a big deal. And it, it did lead to a change, um, the next major shuttle accident was not for 14 years, I think. 
um uh, it was it was a while and then there that's a whole other story about like backsliding and changes in culture but you know they redesigned the SRBs there was a third party uh overseeing like oversight board to make sure that these uh contractors and that NASA didn't cut corners and kind of fall back on their old ways they created a new office of safety reliability and quality assurance at NASA and the idea there is that they reported to the NASA administrator they weren't part of some other group that you know that trickled it all trickled kind of down to the people who could be leaned on and told come on we need to do this it was only they only responded to what the administrator wanted and uh president reagan announced that they would build a new uh orbiter to replace challenger um and that that is the endeavor um and so they they got the endeavor going and endeavor had I forget all the details of it, and that would be a fun topic for another podcast at some point. But Endeavor was uh, constructed partially out of kind of like backup parts, mm-hmm. uh, but also it had um, so they had they you know they didn't plan on building another space shuttle, but they they with Endeavor they had some backup parts and they were able to construct it, and it ended up being the most advanced until they did some of the refits on like Atlantis. It was the most advanced shuttle. They were able to make changes to that shuttle since they were building a whole fifth orbiter. Um, and the big thing, and we talked about this in our episode about the space shuttle way back when is they changed the schedule and the launch schedule became much more slow. And this is really an example where the dream of the shuttle as a, uh, as a vehicle that could fire off weekly, a little bit like Elon Musk's dream for, for SpaceX launches, um, you know, shuttle was sold that way as we're going to be able to rehab it, put it back up. We got four of them. We're going to keep on cycling through them. And after the Challenger, um, the pace completely slowed down. Like, we can't launch them that fast anymore. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of the program, shuttle launches proceeded at a much more deliberate pace. The families um, of the crew organized the Challenger Center for Space Science and Education, this is a permanent memorial to, to the crew in the form of nonprofit educational centers across the country. I think there's 40-something of them, uh, which is pretty neat. There's the Space Shuttle Challenger Memorial in Arlington National Cemetery. And at Candy Space Center, in the Visitor Center, there is the Forever Remembered installation, which honors the uh, seven astronauts that died in 1986 aboard Challenger. Also... Um... A uh, a follow up about Barbara Morgan, the backup to Krista McAuliffe. Uh, Barbara Morgan, after the teach teacher in space program, um, ended after the Challenger disaster. Uh, she became an astronaut. That was uh, she. She followed the teacher in space thing. Uh, she spoke in 1986 uh, around the country with for NASA. She went back and started teaching again. Um, but then she applied to be an astronaut and in 1998, she was selected as an astronaut candidate as a mission Hmm. specialist. She trained and, uh, she flew on STS-118 in August of 2007. So, um, that in the end, uh, Barbara Morgan did get her chance to go into space. And when she on, I believe on that mission, there was a lot of education stuff and a lot of challenger remembrances. It was a moment, um, you know, 20 years after the fact to reflect with somebody who worked closely with Krista McAuliffe on, um, on that moment 
when they were doing the ISS mission for uh, STS-118. So Barbara Morgan uh, ended up becoming an astronaut after all of that and her teacher in space training, which is uh, kind of a, a fun story that to come out of a terrible thing. So in September of 88, Discovery was the shuttle's return to flight mission. Future plans to put civilians on shuttle flights were scrapped, and NASA did its thing for a long time. And then, you know, you mentioned, you know, several years later in 2003, so I guess 17 years later, uh, we have the Columbia accident. and right, 2003. And a lot of those causes, I mean, even though the, the cause of the accident was different, it was foam falling from the shuttle, there's eerie like eerie feelings when you talk about the two of these things together right because issues that were known for a long time and sort of believed not to be a big deal things that engineers were worried about but management said oh that's not possible it is really upsetting how similar these two these two stories are and you know challenger was was blow one against the shuttle mission but columbia was definitely the second and it of course wound down in the years after that. Yeah. Another thing you mentioned, the, the uh, civilian program, one thing that's not widely known, but came out after the uh, Columbia accident is that NASA was actually considering another civilian in space. And after the Columbia accident, they said, no, we're, it, this is too dangerous for us to do this. We're not going to do it anymore. But there was a lot of serious talk before the Columbia accident that Miles O'Brien from CNN, who was their space correspondent, would fly on a shuttle mission and would be the first journalist in space. But um, again, after that accident, they said, you know, we, we need to start. We need to figure out what went wrong here. We need to continue our ISS uh, obligations in assembling the space station, and then we need to shut down the shuttle program, which is ultimately in 2011 uh, what happened. So, um, yeah, the Challenger Science Centers are a great legacy of of Challenger. Barbara Morgan got to talk about the Challenger crew and Kristen McAuliffe um, when she went into space. Um, you know, they've got asteroids named for them. There's there it it is a it is an important part of space history. Uh, and uh, important for it not to be forgotten because it's also a warning about how dangerous space is and how um, systems need to be put in place, like we talked about earlier, about commercial crew, to ensure the safety of the astronauts. So if you want to uh, learn more about Challenger, we have a bunch of links over in the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 116. While you're there, uh, you can check out a link to our blog where we post uh stories in between episodes you can also find us on twitter jason is j snell and you can find me there as ismh until our next fortnight jason say goodbye goodbye everybody adios